Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. A little while ago on Instagram, I posted a question in my stories just trying to find out what you guys were up to in terms of your reading material. And one of my followers said they were reading a book called Love Factually. I'd never heard of Love Factually, but it certainly sounded like the kind of psych nerdy book I would want to read. So I read it and it is fantastic. All the research All the studies that we need to know when we're on the dating scene trying to figure out best practices to achieve our goals of finding our person and finding true love, all that stuff is in this book. And so I'm super pleased to invite the author of Love Factually, Dr. Duana Welch, to the program. Dr. Duana Welch is the original Love Factually author and coach, known for using social science to solve real-life relationship issues. Following her PhD in psychology, she taught at universities in Florida, California, and Texas across 20 years. She is the author of the original Love Factually book series worldwide and contributes to Psychology Today, eHarmony, and others. All her books rely on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep the right partner. And they all have a blue cover for easy identification. Her Love Factually client practice is global via Skype and other technologies. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen, that's D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me, and of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Dr. Duena, welcome to the program. Oh, hi, Dr. Karen. Thank you so much for having me on. So I have to say your book is my favorite type of book to read for so many reasons, but I'll just start with you approach your book, Love Factually, from both the research as a psychologist and researcher, and also as one who's been there. And I think that means so much to my listeners because many of them are in the jungle that is the dating scene, and they're looking to the research. What is concrete in this very nebulous realm? And at the same time, when they read something from someone who maybe married the boy they met freshman year English at college, (laughs) and now they're trying to tell a 45-year-old or 50-year-old woman about the dating scene, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And so because you've been in the trenches yourself and you're bringing your wisdom and the research, I'm really excited to share your words and your wisdom with my audience. Thank you. That's very kind. And I'm really excited to connect with your audience. This stuff is so much fun for me. It wasn't fun at the time, but on the other (laughs) side of it, it really is. I, I find that if you do the hard work on the front end, the back end is a lot easier. And that's so encouraging. And I say that to my listeners in my community on Instagram as well, that 
all the years that they spend single are not wasted. Because I know sometimes they feel that it's wasted time, that life is passing them by and these milestones that they had hoped they would have arrived at this stage of life at a certain time. And it hasn't happened. It can get very demoralizing. I try to remind them that they're doing hard work now, which is absolutely going to set them up and prepare them for a stronger, more fulfilling marriage eventually. Absolutely. The front end work. Some people get lucky. I mean, obviously you can skip that work. There are happily married people who didn't know any of the science and they're happily married nonetheless, but it's not the way to bet. When we have science to help us, I don't see why we wouldn't use that. Yeah. And you essentially, in the beginning of your book, you say you wrote a book that you really wish had been available to you when you were on the dating scene. So can you maybe share a little bit of your journey, the personal part, and then also how that piqued your interest in sharing this information from the psych research with others through your books and through your blogging and um, all the work that you do? Absolutely. Well, I got into this because I sucked at dating. I didn't actually intend to help anybody but myself at first. So I was in graduate school. I was 26-ish, I think, at the time. Isn't it wonderful that now I have to reach back and kind of search for that? Because it was really painful at the time. Yeah. This too shall pass is, is the uh, motto there. Anyway, I was getting my PhD in developmental psychology, specifically memory and aging, not exactly what I'm doing right now. But it occurred to me after a particularly painful breakup that I probably could find out whether anybody else, any other kind of psych nerd had done research into finding and keeping the best partnership. And it turned out that there were decades of science on this, but they weren't really presented in any kind of informal book at that time. So I started looking through the stacks basically at the libraries because that's still how you had to do that. (laughs) And what I found was that I could create a plan in a notebook for how I was going to behave and how I wasn't going to behave, what I was going to do differently, what I was going to do the same, and just kind of see whether I was happier doing it that way not just happier in the short term, but in the long term. And I've got to tell you, I wound up extremely happily married as a result of that. And it didn't take very long either to find the right guy. The unfortunate thing was that I didn't adhere to one of my own standards. If you don't adhere to your own standards, you're not going to get what's going to work for you. And so I wound up divorced. Uh, Even though I knew the science, the fact is I didn't recognize uh, the signs of addiction. And so I wound up divorced because I married somebody who had polysubstance addiction, very sweet man, and really uh, a great, great love of my life. And we have a child together. The next time I was looking, I got super, super serious about it. I can tell you, I, I adhered to all of my standards. So a couple lessons learned. One is science can help vastly. The other is it only helps vastly if you make yourself stick to it. (laughs) Right. It takes discipline in a way that I don't think we recognize. We think of love as this where we let go, right? We fall in love. That's how we frame it and how we talk about it. And yet it does take discipline to stick to those standards. And it's something that I speak to a lot. So I just want to recommend your book also as kind of a way to concretize and, and to have a plan that can feel more structured. And I think that provides a little security in the midst of something that can feel just so vague and uncertain. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, Dr. Karen, because I wanted to feel more secure during my search. And it really did help me. It helped me both times. And it helped me get the results I wanted. The fact is, I don't, 
I'm sure some of your listeners know who Margaret Mead was. She was a sociologist, and she was married three times. And she was once asked about her three failed marriages. And boy, that really ruffled her feathers. And she looked at this person who was interviewing her and said, I have been married three times, and not one of them was a failure. I don't actually view the marriage that I had to my son's father as a failure, but I do view it as a lot of pain that I could have avoided by adhering to a standard that I knew to adhere to and I simply didn't. And so over time, people started approaching me and asking me to do for them what I had done for myself. And that's really when this became professional. And when I remarried, my husband said, Duana, you know these things that everyone should know, and yet very few people do. So what if you shared this information with the world. And at the time my son was little and I didn't, I was, I was a professor and I was raising this little kid and I really didn't want to take the time to write a book because I mistakenly thought that writing a book was some impossible task that would take all my time. And uh, so I wrote a blog instead at lovesciencemedia.com where I could just for free once a week answer people's questions. And then eventually people started asking for a book. And that's how my book series, Love Factually, came to be. And now I have clients really all over the world. I had a client last week in Australia. I have one today in California. And I really just have them everywhere. It's a great joy for me. Yeah, I think it can be so rewarding and fulfilling to be able to help shine a little bit of a light. And also, as I've spoke to you before, because you've been there and felt that, you have that, I think, additional dose of empathy that to me was so important when I was looking for folks to give me a little guidance. I just needed to know that someone understood where I was coming from. And and along those lines, let's start with something that you present in the beginning of the book, these myths of dating. And my background, uh, when I was a therapist years ago, I was real big in CBT and family systems are my two favorite orientations. So whenever we talk about myths and this self-talk, which you refer to throughout the book as well, I think it's a great place to start because we know that if we are holding this belief in our mind, we are viewing our world through that belief. And so when we have myths that so many of us have without even realizing it, we have these beliefs that we're very committed to without recognizing that we're committed to them and that we could possibly consider another belief that might be more empowering and might serve us better in the dating uh, space. So can you talk about some of those myths? You talk about finding and keeping love is only for the lucky and the few. And I know that's something I felt sometimes. There was a while where I would literally walk around town like, I'm just unlucky in love. I'm just one of those people that's unlucky in love. And looking back, how that was not a wise plan to keep telling myself that over and over. Same. I really felt cursed. (laughs) Time. And and that feeling shaped my behavior. And that's the thing about beliefs is they shape behavior. But the, the positive side of that, the flip side of that is that behaviors also shape beliefs. We know from decades of experiments in social psychology and other forms of psychology that if we can change our action, our beliefs will follow. So I don't ever say to anybody, you have to change your beliefs. What I try to give them as an antidote to that belief for them to consider, and then behaviors that will shift their belief over time through success. So for example, act as if it is true that you will find love. My book goes into specifically how to do that. But act as if that you're likely to find love, as if it's likely that you will have a good outcome. Look at the world around you. The fact is the bad relationships get all the attention. They get all the press. I used to ask my students back when I taught university, so how many of you know someone who's in a thriving marriage right now? 
And typically I would have nobody raise their hands except for the people who themselves were in thriving marriages. And then I would say, that's very interesting to me. You want to know why? And they would say, well, why? And I would say, because I'm in one. I've told you that all semester, and yet that never registered. (laughs) Mine didn't get pressed because it was going well. We pay attention to things that don't go well. That's also part of the human psyche in order to survive. Uh, In social psych, they call it bad is stronger than good. And there are hundreds and hundreds of experiments and studies that show that the human brain gloms on to that which is negative. That's why good news doesn't get spread virally usually nearly as rapidly as bad news. But we've got to pay attention to the good news. We have to retrain our brains so that we nurture hope. One of my favorite things that people ever, ever, ever say to me is that my book gave them hope. I got a letter from a man in Italy, uh, a man in Italy Mm. recently. (laughs) Yeah who had told all his friends about my book and he had given all his male friends a copy. And he said, the reason was for the first time in forever, he felt hope. That's really the purpose of, for me, of using science to guide mate search and and mate retention behavior is that there's a lot of hope. Science ultimately comes down on the side of this can work. It's probable that it will work and it will work for you. There are some easy tweaks. You can do them. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a great outcome right out the gate. It doesn't guarantee that the relationship will be great forever. Margaret Mead loved all three of her marriages. None of them lasted her lifetime. But it does give you some more security that you're going down a path that is going to be rewarding for you. Yeah. And I think the hope is huge. And I've come across some research on hope and it looked at, I think it was like, college students and their GPAs. The hope was the variable that prevailed in terms of having higher GPA, and even amidst their IQ and other standardized assessments of how they should perform in that semester at college. And so hope is so powerful, and it's so easy to lose hope when we've been And you say it, and I've said it too, to my community on Instagram, spoiler alert, every single relationship you embark upon until you meet your person is going to fail, (laughs) quote unquote. Yeah, Margaret Mead would say not fail, but it's not going to work out. It's not going to go the distance. And so to look at, like you're saying, look at the science that actually can shed light on the reality. Like you said, the probability is actually in your favor and you speak to that in the book. So I get that people find it hopeful. I think I would have if I was dating now. And I love that someone halfway across the world and a man, by the way, because it always seems that the women are more prone to read this kind of material. So great that you were able to have that far and wide reached to spread that word of hope. You know, men care about love passionately. They really care about it. Very, It's very much still the case that most men want to wind up married and happily married. They want a relationship that lasts their entire lifetime. And when they commit, they really commit. You know, two-thirds of 60% to 70% of filings for divorce around the world are initiated by women, not by men. And men tend to be the ones who fall in love faster, stay in love longer, are more loath to give up on the relationship and carry a torch long after it's over. They're more likely, I was reading a study today that showed that the number one cause of suicide or association with suicide right now for men is being widowed. They care about their relationships. What they don't care for is a bunch of 
babble that doesn't have any science behind it. So about a third of my readers are men. And so for people who are listening, I understand it's mostly women who are probably listening to this program. I just want to give you some more hope. Men really do want what it is you want. They just don't want it with just anybody. And one of the things that my book does is it shows you how to give signals that tell men, yes, give me a closer look. Which is so important. That portion of the book I definitely wanted to focus on today because I do get from women, they do feel that they've given their heart to a guy. Oftentimes they've given their body to a guy. And you say it so eloquently in the book. You, you talk about these dynamics and you call it the mating centrism that we have this default mode that assumes that we are going to as men and women approach the dating process in a similar manner. And yet we don't at all. And you even link it to evolutionary psychology and help us understand how that links to dating in ways that can, like you said, make some very powerful, but minor tweaks in, in the way that we approach dating, but very powerful nonetheless. Sure. So as I said earlier, Margaret Mead was an anthropologist and I was approached a few years ago by uh, an anthropologist who's a friend of mine who said, Duena, you know, I've been reading your stuff on mating psychology and how there, you posit that, meaning me, that there's a human mating ritual that exists in every culture and country in the world. And he said, I just can't go with that. I'm an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist. And what I see is that cultures do things very differently. And I said, so let's talk about that. Have you ever found a culture where there was no dancing? If you have, it's because there was a rule against dancing. Why was there a rule against dancing? Because without that rule, people will dance. Even with that rule, people will break the rule and dance. Around the world, people have religion. People have rituals around how and when they eat. People have rituals around how and when they partner. People have rituals around birth and death. I said, what you're seeing is there are human universals that cultures treat slightly differently but these are universals, actually. And where they come from, anytime in psychology we see something that is a true universal, meaning that maybe not every person in the world engages in this, but every society in the world engages in it. Like, not every person dances, but every society has, has uh, rituals around that. All of them do. Um, when you find something that's universal like that, you start to scratch your head and say, huh, where, where does that come from? And in the case of human mating, our brains have never even heard of the sexual revolution. They're stuck back in cave times. And this is something that I do not love, by the way. I want to make clear, Dr. Karen and everybody listening, that I really don't like a lot of the science that I have to report. But don't shoot the messenger. I have to report on it because it's true. And if you don't know about it, you're at a huge disadvantage. So, for example, men around the world care a lot about what I call the two Fs, fertility and fidelity. Fertility, they can tell by looking at you. They can tell by your waist-to-hip ratio. By the way, men have a universally preferred waist-to-hip ratio in every place on the planet. I'm not going to even tell you what it, well, I will tell you what it is because you're going to look it up if I don't. <laughs> it's 0. 0.75, or 0. 0.7, which means that the waist is roughly 30% smaller than the hips. Now, why would they focus on that? I mean, do they think is her waist exactly 30%? No, no, no. This is unconscious. Human mating psych is unconscious. The scientist, Deb Singh, who posited that this would be true, 
This was his hypothesis, that there would be a universal waist-to-hip ratio that men would prefer. He didn't know what it was. He just believed that it would be universal. And he believed that it would exist regardless even of whether men had eyesight. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Now, why would that happen? And this is where my anthropologist friend said, okay, you win. (laughs) (laughs) Why would it happen that blind men, men who have never seen a woman, would prefer the exact same waist-to-hip ratio as sighted men? Well, because over the millennia, men who preferred women who were shaped like apples may have been very, very happily partnered, but they had fewer children. Over time, anything that results in greater propagation of one's own genes will win. It will become universal over millennia and millennia and millennia. And so today, that is a true human universal found absolutely everywhere. And you know, it's really hard to fake. I mean, women wear corsets, but I'm 51, my dear, and fertility has passed me by. I still have a waist to hip ratio, but I got to tell you, it's not 0.7. When men look at me, they know, even though I've kept great care of my skin and I exercise four miles a day and I lift weights, they know no matter how good all that looks, they know that they would prefer somebody who had a smaller waist to hip ratio. So men, they prefer fertility. And the other F is they prefer fidelity. This is what really gets me in hot water with some people. They just don't want it to be true. People, I agree, I don't want it to be true either. It is what it is. Men prefer signs that if they have sex with you, any children that result will be theirs, not some other cave dudes. Keep in mind, this all comes from cave times. Men act like they still want this, even if they've had a vasectomy, even if they wear a condom every time, even if you are over the age of 50. It's a human universal. Men prefer signs of fertility and fidelity. Now, this is why this is a bummer. It means that while men strongly enjoy having sex very quickly in a relationship, they also, science clearly shows, will typically balk at committing to the same woman that they begged to have sex with them, they will balk at making a commitment to her. I don't like that. It's a terrible double bind. It is sexist. It is, to some extent, misogynist. And unfortunately, it is the truth. At the same time, there's a study that shows, uh, this study was done by a researcher whose last name is Townshend. Townshend asked men and women who were in hit it and quit it, uh, friends with benefits type relationships. In other words, sex only. He asked men and women in these types of relationships whether this would be an appropriate partner for them for the long term. And he asked them whether they were having any difficulty maintaining emotional distance. And what men said was, this is not an appropriate partner for me in the long term. That's part of the reason I'm having a casual sex relationship. Women said the same thing, by the way. They said the reason this is casual is because this wouldn't be an appropriate long partner. But there, the answers stopped being similar. A full three-fourths of men said, oh, easiest thing in the world not to get the feels for this person. I'm not getting attached. 75%. 75% of women said, I know he's not right for me, but you know, I'm kind of catching feelings for the guy. They were having difficulty maintaining emotional distance. Well, it turns out fascinatingly, for those of you who still aren't convinced that we have a biological uh, and psychological mechanism to help us in our partner choice, 
this is where things get really, really uh, kind of Twilight Zone-ish. <laughs> 99% of what is in semen is not sperm. 99% of it is not sperm. The vast majority of what's there is what I call love junk. <laughs> it is there for the purpose of getting a female partner emotionally hooked so that she does not wander off across the savannah with some other dude and cuckold the man that it, that she has had sex with. It bonds women. So condoms actually don't just prevent babies. They, to some extent, can help women prevent emotional bonding. Is that fascinating or what? Yeah, that is. I remember reading that in your book and I thought, okay, this is something that my community needs to hear for sure. Yeah. So all that long rambling answer, and I hope that was cogent. Men really want to fall in love, but unfortunately, because they want to have sex quickly, and unfortunately, because we all want there to be enlightenment and sexual parity, and we want the double standard to go away, a lot of women do have sex quickly. By the way, I did it myself plenty, and I got really hurt because the guys didn't catch feelings, and I did, and it kept me in relationships that I didn't want to be in for longer than I wanted to, or sometimes I would really fall for the guy. He wouldn't really fall for me or he would, but he never would quite make the commitment and it hurt. What I found was when I started applying the science to my life, I didn't get hurt so much. In Mm -hmm. fact, I kind of had to fight the guys off because so many of them fell in love with me that I didn't fall in love with. I was able to take the appropriate amount of time and really think about the decision I was making and stop falling in love and start allowing myself to fall in love when it made more sense. I hear what you're saying because I think many women of our generation feel very frustrated because with the wonderful advances of feminism, which we're also thankful for how hard our grandmothers and our mothers fought for women to have the the ability to be where we are. At the same time, the sexual revolution didn't help women so much. And it's not, again, like you said, we, I don't love this, that this is a reality, but our grandmothers knew that we had to lay back a little bit and let the men come to us. And women, they resist that. They'll say things like, well, I just want to, I don't want to play games and I want to be honest. And if I feel what I feel, I want to say it because I'm empowered now as a woman. And I'm thinking, oh yes, but that's actually going to, as you put it, it's going to cause more hurt and it doesn't work with the natural biology of the ways that we relate to each other. Like you said, I have a lot of women say things like, he was so into me and he pursued me so hard and then we had sex and he ghosted me. And then they feel like, what did I miss? Was he lying to me? Is he a con artist? And I'm with you. I think oftentimes that man felt everything and he was being as honest as he as he believed he was. I mean, he wasn't even trying to be slick or conniving. But what happened is biology took over then. And because he had access to her earlier than what his biology really wants him to, because once he finds out, oh, wait, I was able to have sex with her pretty quickly, is that fidelity now in question? And again, it goes back to caveman days, but that's what's operating within him. And so I feel a lot of empathy for everyone because like you said, without this understanding, we're kind of going about this in ways that we assume will be empowered and effective, but they're actually counterproductive. And we kind of got to go back to grandma and say, oh man, I think she was right about a couple of things. 
yeah, she wasn't right about everything. I don't want to live life the way my grandma lived her life, I got to tell you. And and she had a lot of internalized misogyny that I never want to go back to. I am a feminist, and I don't just view the the job that my mother and my grandmother did as being the end of feminism. I'm actively on as forefront as I can be in feminist causes right now today. But you bring up so many excellent points, Dr. Karen, and one of them that's tangentially related but really important is men don't exactly consciously think that you're a bad bet. What happens is they emotionally lose interest and don't know why. I hear from men who are really confused. I was so into her and then I wasn't and I feel bad. I feel awful about it, but I just don't want to be with her anymore and I don't know how I'm in a hole and I don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. I hear this from guys all the time. They're really not being cads, but they're not they're not aware. It's not like guys look at women and say, she has a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. She is thus fertile and fecund. I shall tap that. That's not what they do. They're not consciously aware of what they're doing. Just like female peacans, they're not consciously saying, hmm, his tail is larger and has more eye spots than this other peacock over there. I'll mate with this one because my children will have double the survival odds. The fact is her children will have exactly double the survival odds, and she has no clue why. She just Mm. knows what she wants. Why does she want that? Because the females in the past that wanted that had children that survived. When more children survive, they carry forward those psychological preferences. We didn't just evolve standing upright instead of dragging our knuckles. We evolved brain matter that runs our show. And as long as it's running your show and you don't even know, as long as it's running men's show and you don't even know, then you're going to keep getting hurt because our culture turns on a dime, but our brain wiring changes glacially. It's a really, really slow pace of change. And so for the idea that I don't want to play games, birds play games, but we don't call them games. We call it their mating ritual. Mm-hmm. The males do a little dance. And if they don't do the dance just right, the females move on. That's a game. But the game is for really high stakes. The game is for nothing less than not just their own survival, but the survival of their genetic line. And that is the game that humans are playing as well. Women don't unfortunately have infinite time to procreate. Men do. Again, do I love this? I do not. (laughs) I don't like it at all. But it is what it is. And so I started viewing it as, and, and I think this may help for those who are really having a hard time with it, which I certainly did for years. I resisted this. So let's cut to the chase here. It will help if you stop thinking of it as a game and you start thinking of it as body armor. It's protection. Mm hmm. And in fact, a lot of the things that will help men determine that you are a good bet for them to commit to for a lifetime, a lot of them are just showing high self-esteem. For example, I eventually reached the point where if someone texted or called me on a Friday or Saturday night, even if all I was doing was watching Netflix, I wasn't going to answer the phone because I was busy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because I was too good for them. It wasn't because I was snotty or snooty. It was because I was already doing something. And I love that you bring this up because I wrote a book about all the things that I heard that I was too picky and, oh, I'm getting a PhD, so I'm probably too intimidating, too opinionated, and all these very archaic twos that are single shaming and it's rampant. But I do encourage my community to remain picky. And and I talk about not settling. And I, my background, I also call it off a wedding. We have some commonalities with our personal history. Yeah. So I encourage that, but I love how you talk about... In your book, you give a very easy way to tell if you are, in fact, too picky. And again, it's protective because it's not about 
thinking that you're superior to anyone. It's just recognizing, and the research shows this in spades, that the commonalities we have, we really can't be too similar as far as our core values, the way we want to do life. It's money in the bank, marital therapists call it, is just fewer things to fight about. And so when we take a look, you actually ask people to write down a list of exactly what they want Share with the listeners how you can then use that list to figure out if you are, in fact, too picky, because I love that strategy. Absolutely. This is my most valuable out of many, many different activities that I can give clients and readers. I think this one's by far the most valuable. It will help you feel better about yourself. It will help you marry the right person or commit to the right person, not the wrong person, as long as you adhere to your own standards. It will help you know if you're being too picky. It will also help you in the sense that you can show the list to very close friends or family members and say, hey, if you meet somebody like this, would you please make sure we meet? It will help you in so many ways. I urge you. I plead with you to do this exercise. So what you do is you just write down every single thing you want in a partner and every single thing you don't want in a partner. And then you go back through the whole thing and you put it all in positive language of what you do want instead of what you don't want. So for example, I could say, I don't want a polysubstance abuser, but instead it, the brain unfortunately looks for what you present to it. Like if I say, don't think about the polar bear, what are you thinking about now? (laughs) The polar bear. So you have to, you have to say what you do want. It's really important. You go back through that long list and anything that's negative, you frame it as the positive. So for example, I want somebody who's clean and sober. That's positive. Mm-hmm. I want somebody who has sobriety as a lifestyle. I want somebody who drinks socially only. All of these are ways to frame what I do want instead of what I don't want. So go and do that. Frame what you do want, and then you divide it into must-haves and wants. This is really difficult for most people. So if you don't mind, Dr. Karen, I'm just going to belabor the point here for a second. Yeah, please. So go through every item on your list, and this is the litmus test for whether it's something you really, really, really want but you could live without it versus something you must have. Say to yourself, if the person I saw or met had absolutely everything, but they were missing this one thing, could I forgive that and move on and it would be a good deal for me? If that's a yes, that item is a want, not a must have. Mm -hmm. Make sure you do it this way. And here's why. Because when you sort things into wants versus must haves, You're going to draw a bright line underneath must-haves. And as you start falling for someone, you're going to go back and look at that, I hope. And if they're missing anything on the must-have list, you must not. You have to break up with them right then. And that's why I am such a stickler for breaking this down into real must-haves, not, oh, I'm afraid if I put it as a want, I won't get it. It has to be a must-have because it helps keep you honest with yourself. Now, let's assume you've done all this. You have done every step I've mentioned so far. And now it's time to see if you're too picky. I want you to go back through your list and put a check mark next to everything on both the must-have portion and the wants portion, everything that basically describes you. So let's say that on your list, it says they must be kind and respectful. Are you kind and respectful? I hope so. Put a check mark next to that. Let's say that you say they have to be generous. Are you generous? put a check mark next to that. Let's say you say uh, they have to like Mexican food and they must be guacamole aficionados. <laughs> if that's you, put a check mark next to that. My guess is that you're going to find that the vast majority of items have a check mark. And that's fair. You're not being too picky if you're asking for someone who's like you. 
Now, I will make a couple caveats here. One of them is that I have a lot of women who say he must dance. Ladies, mostly it's women who like dancing. So if you say he must dance, look, you can find other people to dance with. You really can. If you say he must dance, you are competing with almost every woman for a very, very narrow slice of the male's part of the species. So I encourage you, if something is more superficial, not core to who you are, that you compromise on that. Another thing where women make a mistake, he has to be over six feet tall, or at least six feet tall. 80% of women around the world say that. You know what? Right now in the United States, the average height is between 5'9 and 5'10. The vast majority of American men do not match your standard. And if you insist on this, you got to keep in mind that the men who are six foot tall and taller, they have their pick. So you are now competing against the hottest of the hot women for a very narrow slice of the pie. So you do need to ask yourself, am I overemphasizing things that are not really core to what it's going to be like to live with this person day in and day out? and that all women want, not just me. And if you are, you might be what I call over-indexing, and you might want to relax on that standard a little bit. Yeah, and it's so clarifying to have that list because I think so many women feel that they're told they're too picky, and it may be by a guy who's been, his ego's been bruised when they broke up with them, and he lashes out with, oh, you're too picky, and you expect too much. But they hear it from their girlfriends, too, and family members. Mm -hmm. And I'm always at least when I was on the dating scene, I just felt like I'm not asking for anything that I'm not willing to give. So when you, and I'd never done a list like that because I hadn't read your book back then, but I thought, oh yeah, if I'd done that when I was dating, I'm really just looking for my match. And people will say, well, would you date yourself? And I was always like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not like, I know that we're all human. I'm not looking for the perfect person. I just want the person who perfectly fits with me. And I want my my community to continue to have hope for that. And again, your book provides some tangible ways to approach dating that can really help them, I think, revive that hope, even after there's been years of disappointment. Absolutely. And don't make yourself less than what you are. Dr. Karen, something you've brought up a couple times is people who told you to try to be less than who you are yes. so that you didn't intimidate a guy. You know what? Yep. I call BS on that. I have three degrees and a certification in my own business. And when I was single, I didn't back away from any of it. And there's a difference between not backing away from it and putting it front and center. On my online profile when I was dating, I emphasized my personality and my appearance and the things that were really going to be the things that would make me a fun interesting partner to spend a lifetime with. I did not lead with, I have a PhD. Yeah. How you lead does make a difference, but neither did I ever hide that fact. Right. When men would say, where did you go to school? Or did you go to school? I would say, yes, in fact, I did. I went to the university of Florida and I got a master's and a doctorate there. And you know what? Some men were intimidated and they weren't my men. Right. Exactly. You know, they right. weren't my men. The world is brimming with men who are you know, sapiosexual, they dig it when <laughs> girls are smart and have advanced degrees and you need to find one of those. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, I encourage the same as you do throughout the book. It's that that it's not about like, oh, shoot, that guy didn't like me. So I was intimidating. I better tone it down a notch or whatever foolish message they've been receiving. It's, oh, well, it's good to know. (laughs) Glad I found out that he doesn't like a strong, independent woman with a lot of opinions. That's great because we're not a match. And now I can move on. I'm freed up and he's freed up. And we're both freed up now to find the person that is a fit for us. Yeah. And there's, you know, you brought up another good point, which is there's really no need. Most of the time when things don't work out, there's no need for hard feelings. A lack of a match doesn't make either one of you a bad person. It just means that you had critical differences that weren't sustainable. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. I want to ask you about another uh, one of the myths that you spoke to, and this is one that's really common that I hear in the space that I'm in and that you're in, and it's the notion that we must love ourselves 100% and be super happy on our own, and then we'll find him. And I, for me, I don't like the formula, just hurry up and love yourself, right? And then he'll show up. And I'm always thinking, well, there's people who met the love of their life when they were 18, and I don't know that they loved themselves any more fully or completely than a 38-year-old woman who is older and wiser and more emotionally mature, and she's still looking for someone, but people keep giving her that pat answer of, well, as soon as you learn to love yourself, he'll show right up. So you speak to that, but at the same time, you talk about, as a woman in particular, you need to make sure that you are recognizing and behaving in a way that communicates to suitors that you are high status. So can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So it goes back to the concept that we can act ourselves into a a way of feeling. It's not just the other way around. You know, I got to tell you, Dr. Karen, I do not feel like getting up almost ever. (laughs) I'm not a morning person either. (laughs) And I don't feel like going to bed. You know, those are the two hardest things to make me do is to get up and to go bed and to go lie down. Same. (laughs) Same. And yet I do both of these things. And as soon as I've done them, I feel like, I feel like I want to be doing them. Mm Mm-hmm. We can do things and then feel the way about it that we need to feel. You don't need to, and I love what you said earlier about single shaming. The idea that we're telling people, you know, you'd have him if you just loved yourself more. That's single shaming. Yeah. It's it's making people feel even worse about themselves for feeling bad about themselves. I really don't like that. No, and it's right. So, <laughs> so, so what I'd far prefer is, Learn the tools of behaving as if you have high status because men want high status in all things. Cave women chose men who were the better hunters, who were the better providers, and that goes right on until today. If you want to find something women everywhere just loathe, despise, and hate, (laughs) it's laziness in a man. 
We want yeah. men who are go-getters. And those men were chosen disproportionately to have babies with. So today, most men actually do have motivation, and they do try for the brass ring in life, and they don't stop trying for the brass ring when it comes to their life partner. They especially have high standards for who they are going to commit to. And that means they want a woman who has high status. And how do they know you have high status? Because you act like you do. You act like a woman who could say no to them. You do say no to them sometimes. You do it really sweetly. I want to I really stop here for a second and emphasize, I do not mean be a bitch. There's a book right. out there that's been a bestseller forever that mm-hmm. basically tells women to be a bitch. You know what happens when you marry somebody, when you're a bitch? It doesn't go well. Science could not be more clear. It could yeah. not be more clear. That is a crash and burn scenario. Will you find some men who were treated badly by their mothers who put up with this for a short time? Yes, you will. Is it going to make you happy? No, it is not. So let's talk about the delicate balance that is being high status and being kind and respectful because it's both and it's not either or. So let's say that somebody calls you really late at night or they text you, which is what they're going to do now. Right. And you feel like You don't want to play games and you also don't want to lose the guy. So you're just going to text right back. That's a low status move. Mm -hmm. That's a move that says the following. I'm on an electronic leash. You can get me anytime. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I will lay to rest any fears you had that I was desired by any other man. I'll tell you, oh, I wasn't up to anything. Just, you know, talking to my sister. He needs to think you might be on a date. Don't tell him you are, but he needs to at least have the possibility running around in his mind that you could be desired by someone else. Why? Because high status because brass ring, because evolution and women have always selected the guy who worked hard to have everything, including the girl. And if you're not hard to get, he falls in love with the person who is. It's not politically correct. It's not feminist. It's not what I wish was true, but it is the case. So for example, when I met my husband, whose name is Vic, when I met Vic, he and I didn't live in the same city, which makes being hard to get actually really easy to do Mm -hmm. because we couldn't see each other at the last minute. We would have phone dates before we ever met in person. We met online, then we had some phone dates. And he told me really quickly that he was very sure he didn't want to see anybody else. And this was way too soon for me. And this is another thing, women, don't say yes to that if you're not ready. If you're not ready, men only like you more if you're hard to get, as long as you're also super rewarding to talk with and be with when you are with them. So by rewarding, I don't mean sex. I mean praise. Humans work for praise. We all do. We, we work for the approbation of others. So I was super upbeat because I really liked him. And I would tell him, I really like you. I'm really enjoying getting to know you. Notice that hard to get doesn't mean hiding that you like somebody either. Right. But I wasn't available at the very last minute ever. And I also wasn't available just because he asked me to be his girlfriend. What I told him was, you know, I really appreciate that you like me. I like you too. I don't know you well enough yet. I have assumed that you were dating around and I'm still doing that because I'm just not set on any one person yet. Now, women, I know most of you, it was like a gut punch to hear that because if a man said that to you, it would feel horrible and you wouldn't want to see him anymore. But men don't have the same mating psychology. Men look for fertility and fidelity. They know fidelity because they had to work to have you, which makes them assume all men have to work to have you, which makes men assume that if they have you, nobody else does. Women 
we have a different set of concerns out there on the African plain where we all came from. Back in that past where our mating psychology comes from, women did not have to worry about whether the baby was theirs. We've never had to worry about that. When a baby emerges from our body, we look down and say, oh, it's mine. We, we know this. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about fidelity so much for a reason of genetic procreation or whether the child's going to be ours. What we have to worry about is, is he going to run off with that other cave hoe over there? <laughs> because if he does, you know what happens to us? Our family yeah. might not take us back in. Around the world, a very common outcome in societies where calories are scarce has been that if a woman loses her provider and protector, her family does not, in fact, always step in. It often meant the death of the woman and the children. There are cultures today, and I will not mention them because I do not want people to go and, and hate on them. This is what they've done because they've had to do it. They will bury the woman and her children if the man dies. That's harsh. Mm -hmm. We can assume that that was a likely outcome in the past. So what women cared about was commitment, commitment to her and her children, complete commitment to her and her children. And I know some people out there who are good critical thinkers will say, but wait, there are many societies where men have more than one wife. Yes, and you know what? In all those societies, women want to be the one who was chosen for love. They vie mm. for that distinction. They compete for that distinction. They try really hard to be the wife that was chosen for that because guess what? The guy gives more resources to the woman he loves. He's less likely to abandon the woman he loves, and therefore her genes get cast forward. Her children survive at higher rates than the children of the wives who are not loved. And that's true even now. It's always been true. So the reason this hurts for you to hear women when, when you hear me saying the thing to my now husband, oh, and I'm still dating around, and I assume you are too, is because that would, as we say where I'm from, you'd be off like a prom dress if a guy said that to you. <laughs> you'd be gone. But that's because you are looking for someone who fully invests in you. He's not looking for that right away. In fact, he's looking for a woman who didn't fully invest in anyone right away, who had high standards, who showed that she was high status by not being snobby, not being bitchy, but taking her time. And I love that you call it high status because it's really, it just conceptualizes exactly what we want to do because we know we're valuable. We know that deep down and we get ourselves caught up in the situations chips or the it's complicated. And really it's sad and I've been there too. And, and it does, it hurts to hear some of this stuff because we go, well, shoot, it feels like I have to play games, but it's not a game playing it's not playing hard to get. It's just being hard to get because you are high status mm -hmm. and that's going to work in your favor. And that's going to help you weed out the folks who are not going to be committed to you, which is what most women in my community are looking for. They're looking for that person. They're looking for their person. They're looking for that lifelong companionship. And let's weed out the folks who aren't going to be that so that we can create space and maintain space for the right person to come along. And you even, a practical application of this, you even say, because I get this question a lot too, well, we've been dating for a little bit, but it's kind of vague as to what we are. I want to have the conversation about whether or not we're exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited now to know that the research supports what my instinct has been to, to share with my community. Let him have that conversation. Let him bring that up to you. Again, it sounds very archaic. It sounds like I want to be an empowered woman. I can speak my mind. But explain to the listeners why it's better to let the guy have that conversation. 
I want you to be an empowered woman. I really do. And how to do that is until he brings up the conversation, you keep dating other people, keep getting to know other people, keep your options open. Do not allow yourself, and it's an allowance, do not allow yourself to fall head over heels for someone who has not shown that he's at least as head over heels for you. It is to some degree a choice. We can't make ourselves fall madly in love with someone, but we can slow the the drastic fall and use a parachute. We can do this. And the reason it's so important for the guy to bring it up is if you bring it up, it sounds clingy, dependent, and low status. If he brings it up, it's because he really wants this. I've never yet met the man who was excited to marry the woman that he felt like he should marry. Right. He wants to commit because he's overjoyed with who you are and he got to discover that and he got to have a dopamine rise. The The brain chemistry of men is that while they fall in love, they have a, a prolonged rise in a biochemical called dopamine. They cannot fall in love without it. And research shows that if they wait to have sex, i.e. if the woman forces them to wait to have sex because they don't want to wait. If they wait to have sex, then they either figure out, oh, well, you know what? No sex. I'm not really up for this. Well, then they were never going to fall in love with you anyway. Right. If they don't wait to have sex and they were really into you, a lot of times they're not into you anymore. I want to say there is an exception. Men who are virgins, like the 40-year-old virgin kind of scenario, they'll probably have, fall in love with the first woman they have sex with, really and truly. But you know, mostly that's not who's out there dating right now. So it's not the way to bet. It's risky to do it that way. So that's why the man needs to be the one that has this conversation. He needs to be pursuing exclusivity with you. You need to be open to learning about and getting to know in a non-sexual way, lots of different people. If you feel guilty about this, and I know a lot of women feel guilty about it. They feel like they are playing a different game than another game that they don't want to play. So don't play the game. Say straight out to the guy really quickly, I know that a lot of people, here's a script you can use. I know a lot of people immediately stop seeing all others while they figure out whether something's going to work out. I don't find that it makes a lot of sense to get that serious about somebody I don't really know. So I just wanted to let you know, I'm still getting to know other people and I assume you are too. And then just drop it there. You're off the hook. You're not playing a game. You're not, in fact, done right. Being hard to get really isn't playing a game. It's just being who you are. You have to make some emotional shifts in order to do that. I can't tell you how great it felt the first time I realized, oh, I am never again going to live on the edge where I wait until Friday afternoon to see if a guy's going to call before I make any plans with my friends. No. If my friends ask me a whole week in advance if I want to go kayaking on Saturday afternoon, I say yes. And then if a guy texts me and says, do you want to go somewhere on Saturday afternoon? I say, oh, I'm sorry. I have other plans. And I don't say, but it's just kayaking with my friends. I simply stop. He doesn't need to know that. (laughs) He does not need to know. He's not your husband. He's not your fiance. He's not even your boyfriend. Right. Do not dispel the magic of yearning for him. Oh, I love that. I love how you put that. Don't take that away from him. Men love that. They, They hate to love it. They love to hate it. Don't take it away. Yeah, I I encourage my community, you know, until you've had that conversation, which he needs to have, and I can say that now with more authority, thank you for your research, that it's none of their business what you're doing when you're not together. And that's not snotty. And that's not trying to play games. That's just, I have a full life. That is a high status move. Yeah. 
Yes. That's you. What you just said, that's a high status move. Now, what I tell my clients, be funny about it. Say, uh, the first line of defense is when he asks, just laugh. Yeah. <laughs> if he asks again, because he really shouldn't be asking. Exactly. So just laugh. And if he asks again, say, oh, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> and then if he asks again, say, no, really, you don't want to hear about other men I'm going out with, do you? And stop. He will not ask after that. Mm-hmm. What he will do is he will up his game. I remember when I was in grad school, there was this one guy who would call me every Friday night. I should, and this is pretexting. This was like 1997. So here I am answering the phone on Friday night. Boo hiss. <laughs> I'm answering the phone on Friday night. And he calls every Friday night and he says, so what are you doing? And I would always tell him, duh, shouldn't have been telling him. <laughs> Okay, because I was, you know, an emancipated woman who was not going to play any games. I'm telling this guy. So one Friday night he calls, and I actually had a date an hour from when this guy called. And he said, so what are you doing? And I said, "Um, I'm going on a date in an hour. And he goes, oh, what are you doing Sunday? I'd like to take you out. He had been calling me for like six weeks and never offered to take me out. But the second I had somebody else, he was there. He showed up to that date with flowers. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that... All you had to do was elevate your status by letting him know. And then he's Sunday with flowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I overslept. It was the time change that day. And I overslept and he was at the restaurant and I got a phone call. He had been there for 10 minutes already. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I overslept because of the time change. I'm so, so sorry. And he said, I will wait for you to get here and it will be my privilege to do so. <laughs> Wow. I did not, that relationship did not work out, but because I didn't want it to work out, not because he didn't. Yeah. I love this. I love the high status. I love all that you share in the book, Dr. Duena. I do want to also let listeners know that the book provides these scripts that you provide, I think are so helpful because sometimes we just need a little bit of an example of how do I communicate it's none of your business without sounding harsh and, and feeling that it's not who I am to speak that way. So so this, these ways that we can subtly and then overtly communicate our status to those that we're interacting with, which can then allow us to just elevate our entire experience in the dating world. And so I want to thank you so much for for joining me today. Let the listeners know where they can buy the book, where they can read your blog, or where they can work with you and all the things. Absolutely. If you want to just see my entire list of books and where you can get them, you can go to Love factually.co. That's lovefactually with an F.co. And you'll also see a link if you want to know more about my blog and my coaching. It'll take you straight there. And uh, that's really a good resource. If you just want to go to my blog, you can go to lovesciencemedia.com and you can type in the search field uh, or look at the tags of articles and you can see all the different things I've written about over the past 11 years. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your research and your personal experience with my listeners today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, same here. It was a delight and I would love to be back on show to talk about Love Factually for single parents if your audience would appreciate that at some other point. That would be fantastic. Let's schedule that. The love and life hack for this week is Love Factually. The science is there, so let's use it to find our person and create a phenomenal relationship in which both of us thrive. 
Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. As always, thank you so much for joining me this week. If you happen to have a second and you can review the podcast, it helps others find the program so they can join the Love and Life family. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.